hey everyone back again okay let's finish off spinoza's ethics with part five of the power of the intellect or of human freedom now uh, i'm gonna be very eager to get past this text because it's very boring to present as i've already said you know these lists and whatever uh, but let me know what you thought of it i'd really like to know what you think of spinoza if i captured spinoza's thought correctly spinoza spinoza whatever uh anything that i should have included I'm pretty confident that if you've listened to all of this, you actually <laughs> don't need to read the text, which is something I I always try not to say. But here it's like you're pretty much getting exactly what you read in the text with maybe um, in more accessible English than you'd find in a translation. And if you've just stumbled into this episode, go check out parts one to five. You know all the links, all that stuff, something else worth saying for any of you listening now. I'm going to be taking next week off, so no episode, and then we'll return after that with something. I'm not sure what, but I promise you it will be good. All right, part five of the power of the intellect or of human freedom. So here he's turning to uh, reason, to cattle, to cattle, to shepherd the emotions, to use reason as a way to guide the emotions and to give those emotions that we've already discussed that encourage our uh, capacity to act, to give those ones precedence over the other ones that af negatively affect our capacity to act. Now, this is this is a very simple, you know, way to characterize what he's going to do here, but just put that on your radar as we go forward. So against Descartes' idea, uh, many of his ideas, or, or Descartes, who focused on mind's command over the pineal gland, was the idea. The idea being for Descartes uh, was that you really need to let reason guide the way and suppress, to some extent, not using that language, but you have to suppress the emotions that are going to lead you astray, that are going to get you to focus on things that are not going to guide your being in the way that uh, they should. Here Spinoza, against Descartes, isn't so convinced in the mind's separation from the body to be able to say that the mind and reason can just exist above everything else and command everything instead he's more he's more willing to accept a dynamic exchange between the mind and the body between the negative emotions and the good emotions to some extent he's advocating for something more resembling the golden mean that we find in aristotle the idea here being that it would be stupid to say that you can just suppress all of your emotions to suppress all of the negative stuff in your life like that's silly let's be real here that's silly he is certain though that there is a distinction between the two in that they are different attributes or modifications of god's eternal attributes infinite attributes or they're parts of that those infinite attributes but they do come from the same thing called god come from nature it's not as though one of them the mind exists outside of nature as Descartes seems to think, and with the asterisk, you know, his point being that we can always be sure of the mind if it is thinking correctly, while we might not be able to be fully sure of the body. Spinoza's not wading in those waters. He's not going in that direction. So let's continue on with our axioms that we find at the beginning of every single other part of this book. So axiom number one, if someone experiences two contrary actions, in themselves to conflicting actions, 
they will both change, or one will change, so that the contradiction disappears. If you are, what he is essentially saying is that if you are confronted with two different emotions, almost two different impulses, two different drives, they will correct themselves so that this contradiction will, will no longer exist. Because otherwise, you will be caught, uh, you will be arrested to some extent, you won't be able to move or develop unless one of those drives takes primacy and is able to then direct your being. Axiom number two. An emotion's power is limited by its cause, which is very interesting, hard to quantify, hard to verify, because, you know, emotions can get away from us. If there's a tragic incident that causes an emotion in us, for years we might feel a certain way about it because of that cause. But then the emotion might start to augment with time, especially in the case of a traumatic event, being untreated, you don't, you haven't spoken to anyone about it or anything, it might actually get worse and worse and worse. So is it that then for Spinoza in the first years in this example of that traumatic experience or following it, you were not experiencing the full breadth of that trauma yet? So if that's the case, though, how does he know this? Like, how do you, how do you know when an emotion has been fully realized as a result of a cause proportionate to the actual strength of that cause. I mean, it's an interesting point, but I think it demands some unpacking. Okay, so into our propositions. Proposition number one, connection of thoughts and ideas in the mind are mirrored in the modifications of the body. And the opposite is the case too, where things that happen in your mind that, that truly happen and that you truly believe will manifest themselves in your body. Like, let's say you, in your mind, you think that it's super important that you get a silly example, you get lots of sleep. You know, this is super important to you. Your body will go to sleep. You know, you will go to sleep at a certain hour. If instead your mind is like, oh, I want to play online chess all night, then your body will do that thing. Uh, and if you do otherwise, then your body acts accordingly to what you actually want. You're, it's not as though your body is doing things mechanically without your mind actually wanting those things as well, and vice versa, at least for Spinoza. I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist. I don't really know if one can act, you know, one without the other, but in any case, I'd like to know what you all think if you are willing to leave comments. Proposition number two. If we detach a bad thought from an external object with which we associate that thought and attack, attach it instead to a new thought, then the bad or the good feeling will go away if we had a good feeling. So what he is saying is that if a certain idea or feeling towards a, an external cause, like having a strong feeling towards, I don't know, a certain work of art, I, it's a, or some, somebody who did something mean to you, and then you find out that it was actually somebody else, you will not feel that way towards that other person. You will then feel it towards this new person. Which seems, seems simple enough. It makes sense. Proposition number three. An emotion will cease to be a passion as we better understand it. So a passion being one of those things that is without our control. It is something that drives us that we don't have full control over. 
But as we begin to understand it more, understand its place in our lives, why it resonates with us, why it makes sense to us, then we can begin to take command over it. Like, if you love playing online chess all the time and you lose hours of, I don't know why this exists, and you lose hours playing online, I'm a fan, I'm a chess fan. I like watching people play chess. I don't play it much myself, but if you, if you enjoy playing online chess and you become like addicted to it, like a lot of people are with video games, maybe understanding why you love it so much will be a way for you to take control of it so that it's not taking control of you. Like learning that maybe your love of the game is not actually about the game itself, but about vanquishing other people, about feeling bigger or smarter than other people in the case of online chess. And then you know, I, I don't know, but this is, I'm just, just an example. Number four, proposition four, there is no body modification that we can't develop a clear idea of because it, it you know, we have to be able to make some sense of it. Otherwise, like, why is it there? It has to have some kind of reason, even if it's, you know, explained evolutionarily through various developments in nature. Number five, an emotion towards imagined object is greater than an emotion to a necessary, possible, or contingent thing. Which is certainly an interesting claim, because you'd think that a real thing would have more effect on you, but if we really encounter the strength of the imagination and thinking about really you know if you think about a horrible thing human suffering for example this can really evoke strong responses in you because you will think about the worst possible thing you know this is my way of understanding this proposition at least number six as the mind comes to terms comes to terms with everything comes to term with everything comes to come to, comes to terms with everything wow I don't know, comes to terms with everything's necessity, it will increase its control over the emotions. That is to group, in his words, this is like the capacity to group everything into the infinite chain of cause and effect. Because once you find purpose in things, you find the meaning in things and their necessity, it can certainly give you some degree of peace in understanding the order of the world and the universe which is a very, very peaceful thing, knowing that everything follows this law, the law of cause and effect, and nothing is truly random. Proposition seven, emotions from reason are greater than emotions related to individual objects, which we contemplate as absent. So in his words, reason always deals with common properties. So it, this makes sense. You're, you're, the, the emotion that comes from reason would be greater than emotion towards individual objects that you know we're perceiving as being pres uh, absent, as not being around us. Or in his, or more in his words, or his ideas that thought about things that are present or, or thought about through reason is a productive way of engaging with the world, whereas just thinking about something that is absent is more of a passive relationship with that thing. So the emotions towards them will be weaker as a result. Proposition eight, the greater number of causes for an emotion, the greater the emotion will be. So if, you know, lots of things making you feel sad, you're gonna feel even more sad. Proposition nine, if an emotion with many causes affects us, we will feel less strongly to each cause 
than if there were fewer. So, you know, if, if there are many different things causing an emotion, then that feeling that you have towards those things is going to be spread out across those things. Or the, uh, the effect in the form of the emotion is going to be spread out across those things. So you will feel like not as strongly towards any of those individual things as you would if that emotion was caused by a singular object or a singular uh, event or, or whatever. Number 10. So long as we aren't agitated by emotions that counter our nature, that go against our nature, we can align body modifications to the intellect. So this is to say that these would stop us from acting. And the better the connection between the mind and body, the less likely we'd be strongly affected by evil emotions. So the better harmony you have between your mind and your body and the way that they work, they work harmoniously, then the better you're going to be able to have a grip over all of your emotions. You're going to be able to have a, a stronger grip over them and to understand them. And there is, you know, in all of this, it's the what's coming through here is definitely that reason over um, over emotions thing, which is problematic, obviously. But in any case, that's what he gives us. I feel like that's my catchphrase. In any case, that's what we got. So you just got to accept it. Number 11, the higher number of things that connect to uh, that we connect to an image or emotion, the more constant that image or emotion will be. So the more common and frequent and therefore the more constant, easy enough. Like the more we think about it, the more it comes up for us. It's just going to have more of a lasting effect. Twelve, images of things most easily connected to others we have, or, or others we have, form a clear and distinct image or idea of that thing. So the clearer the thing, the likelier it it. It is a common property of things or what are deduced from those things. So if like matter, for example, matter is very apparent to us. Like we see matter everywhere and we know it to be a common property of all things. It's what gives everything its essence and it's the, well, it gives everything its possible existence, I should say. And in that respect, then, because it is so simple, we have a pretty clear idea about what it is and how it connects to other things. So, and you know, we can extend this, I don't know, like screens, like a television screen, computer screen or whatever. It's a silly example, but we have a pretty clear idea about what these things are, not necessarily how they work, but what they are. And we can find through that then a uniting principle between computer screens, television screens, phone screens, we can, and we can even develop theories and understand how all these things connect with one another and why we have this fascination with them and we, we almost this obsession with them. Take or leave that example, but in any case. 13. The more connections to other things an image, uh, I guess an image has, the more frequently does it present itself. So if something is connected to many different other things, then we're going to see more of that thing. Obvious enough. 14. The mind can cause all body modifications to be related to the idea of God. And the mind can do this with all modification. So we can understand the attachment of all body modifications in how they extend in space to God precisely because they extend 
in space. This is what our capacity, uh, our fundamental capacity in our mind, which is, uh, you know, one attribute that we take from God, that we can then use to attach our body to God. 15. Those who clearly understand themselves and their emotions love God, and more so, the more clearly they understand themselves and their emotions. Because for, um, for Spinoza, this signals someone's full understanding and power over their capacity to act, which is directly in line with God's will, given that Spinoza identifies this as part of human essence, the ability to act. And the better control you have over your emotions, knowledge of yourself, what you want, what your drives are, what your desires are, then the more resonant you are with God and God's will. You know, again, you know, we jump back a few episodes. Does God really have a will for Spinoza? Hard to say. Probably not. I'm using the term here to be mostly lazy in that I'm saying that having this knowledge means that you have knowledge of nature which is just existing. It's not existing for us. Like it doesn't have a will that it is mobilizing for humans. We are just a part of it. And the more that we understand ourselves, the more that we can furnish, we can, we can do, cultivate that connection with nature slash God. Number 16, this love of God should be prioritized in the mind. It's obvious enough. Should be one of our primary tasks. 17, God is free from the passions and joy and sorrow because we experience these things in our, whether or not we are approximating God's plan or nature or just the, the order of things. But because God is synonymous with that order, anything God does is automatically perfect. So God never feels like, oh, am I doing things right? Because God is the ultimate being and is always acting. 18 act not acting like like an actor but you know you know what i mean power to act 18 no one can hate god the idea of god in us is perfect and to think this idea is to act and to therefore operate according to our essence as acting and therefore in accordance with nature and god 19 like you can, I guess you could hate God if you just personify God in like some kind of deity type figure like Jesus or any other God-like figure that, that organized religions do. But if we think about God instead as the order of all things in nature, the universe, then it is possible to hate God because we are all just of it. Like there's no, we don't have that capacity to actually hate it because even to hate God in that act is an act itself, demonstrating your ability to exert some degree of free will, which is to actually love God. I'm, I'm reading a bit into him here, into Spinoza's words, but I think that it's a sound argument nevertheless. 19. No one who loves God should expect love in return. That is because God doesn't love anyone. God doesn't have the, like, love, this is human. This is all human nonsense. Like we, God, if there is like a, a God that's like a person, we personify. That there, first of all, that's not the case. But God would not love anyone or anything. 
20. Our love of God can't be sullied by jealousy or envy of another's connection and love of God. Because that would just be to submit too much again to this personified idea of God, whereas it's as though they're like a romantic partner, where in a monogamous setting, monogamous worldview, only one person can really love God. No, that that's not, that can't, you can't, someone can't love God more than you. And so therefore, somebody, you can't envy someone for their love of God. You can if you, you know, follow like Christianity and there's almost like different tiers of love of God, which is problematic, obviously. But you won't find that here in Spinoza. 21. Mind can only imagine while the body exists. Super interesting here. Against Descartes, like very big blow against Descartes here, because he's saying that the mind and the body are inseparable. We can't just be sure of the mind and think, oh, after death, the mind will just go on. Uh, we can't be certain of that. Spinoza is more clear that the mind depends on the body to imagine, to recollect. I mean, the mind develops its capacity to think because you think in words, you think in images because of what our body has experienced. You aren't born with knowledge, innate knowledge about how to think or how to, how to act in any way. You have to learn these things in your relationship with nature the, and the ordering of nature that conditions us and it conditions everyone very similarly in our natural capacities to adopt language, to uh, perceive space and time, to borrow from Kant, to you know have engage in community. Like these are things that all people do. There's, a, there's I, I assume language, space and time and community. I don't know. Am I I might be reaching here, but it seems like this is this is pretty necessary. Everyone does this. Okay, 22. God contains the idea of essence of humans. Because we this, this essence of humanity comes from God. It doesn't come from anywhere else. 23. Part of the human mind outlives the body. That is because it relates to God as eternal. Super interesting. Here we're getting into the real weeds of this, this issue here. Why is it only a part? What is this part? This part exists separate from the rest of the mind? Is this part somehow separate from the rest of the body? Is this the part that allows us to be able to have universal attributes among us all? Like the ability to perceive space and time, you know, to form community, despite the fact that we are all different people with different perceptive capacities, different experiences in the world. Like, I, I mean, I don't know. 24. The more we understand individual objects, the more we understand God. So this actually points to Proposition 25 from Part 1, that is that God produces all things essences. So the more we understand individual objects, the more we understand God. Just because everything is of God. 25. The highest... Uh, I guess, virtue of the mind is to understand things according to the third form of knowledge, which if you don't recall, uh, in the, don't, I think it was part three, he offers us three um, kinds of knowledge. There is the first one that's just like opinions or imagination, which is just falsity, like it's not proven. The second is reason, which is common knowledge of properties of things. 
And the third form of knowledge is the intuitive science and universal application of knowledge of God's attributes. So here he is saying, to jump back to the Proposition 25, that the highest virtue of the mind is to understand things according to the third form of knowledge, that is the intuitive science and universal application of knowledge of God's attributes. That's the highest form of knowledge. 26. The more the mind has adopted this third form of knowledge, the more it desires to use it, to use this knowledge. It will, it will become obsessed with that knowledge because it is, it is of the highest order. 27. Which is like, even just more broadly, if you learn things, it seems to me that people would tend to keep learning things. You're always learning things uh, because they're, you know, this is a very appealing thing. If there is anything that continues after you die, it's going to be your mind. And, that, you know, you're not going to bring your body with you, I assume. I have no idea, obviously. If there's anything, it's going to be your mind. And this is good justification to always be expanding it so that you know you can take as much with you as, as you can. But I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's grim. 27. The third form of knowledge births, births highest possible peace of mind. It's obvious. Because you become attuned with God's will, you become attuned to the order of things, to really the structure of it all. Which is kind of peaceful, at least for me. Number 28, third form of knowledge can only emerge from the second, not the first. So the second being reason itself, not the first that is just like opinions or imagination. So it must come from adequate ideas found in reason and not confused ones. 29, everything the mind perceives as eternal, it does so not by looking at the existence of the body, but the essence of the body under the form of eternity. So, you know, there's so many, this is so much to chew on here. If we jump back a few propositions, he was telling us that there was only part of the mind that is eternal, but now we can look at the body under the umbrella of eternity. Does that mean that part of the body will extend to eternity? Probably not. What seems more likely is that we can situate the body as being one part of an eternal uh, materiality or an eternal extension in space. And we are part of that, which is also very, I think, very um, comforting to know, to, to always be a part of that. 30. Yes, 30. <laughs> if our mind understands itself and our body under the form of eternity, it has a knowledge of God. That is because eternity is the very essence of God. 31. The third form of knowledge depends on the mind as eternal, as its cause. That is because only as eternity can it have knowledge of God. If we just thought of it as finite, then it wouldn't have any attachment to the eternal. And if God's not eternal, is there really any reason to follow God to find solace in God. I don't know, there might be, but let me know. I, I mean, I don't know. 32? Everything from the third form of knowledge delights us and God 
<laughs> delights us. And this delight is accompanied with the idea of God as its cause, which is we feel good when we embrace this kind of knowledge, which is, in his words, the intellectual love of God. 33, the intellectual love of God is eternal. It can't, it will never die. 34, mind subject to passions just while the body exists. Or the mind is subject to passions just while the body exists. So afterwards, the mind will be totally in tune with the eternity of God's, of God, of nature, of, of thought as eternal, infinite attribute. And there won't be any, like you won't have bodily drives that you're trying to satisfy or deal with. No more online chess. 35. God loves itself with infinite intellectual love. That is to say that God is the cause of itself as infinite. So God has infinite love of itself as, I guess, as eternal. 36. Our intellectual love of God mirrors God's love for itself because our mind in his words, is part of the infinite love with which God loves itself. Seems fair enough. We are of God in thought, in being part of its infinite attributes, where thought is one of those attributes, so therefore we are part of this eternal love of God for itself. God being totally in harmony with itself. God always being perfect and us being a part of that. 37. Nothing in nature opposes this intellectual love of God because everything in nature is of God. Nothing can truly oppose it. 38. The more things that the mind understands through the second and third form of knowledge, that is through reason and then through knowledge of God, God and God's attributes, the less this mind is subject to passions and the less it fears death because it knows about the, really the, order of all things, the harmony of all things, the purpose of all things. 39. The more adaptable our bodies are to things, the greater our mind will be as eternal. So the more we experience with our bodies, the more our minds grow, which we talked about in a previous part. And therefore, the more we will grow in our relationship with God. And the more we will bring with us into eternity, at least. Yeah. But in his words, he says that a body fit for many things is least agitated by emotions. We always seek to strive to change through acting, to learn more, to experience more, to grow our bodies, to grow our minds. Number 40. The more perfect a thing is, the more it acts and the less it suffers. The more it acts the more perfect it is. So the more perfect, the more reality it possesses. The more knowledge it has of things, the more knowledge it has, therefore, of God, of God's ordering, of God's plan. 41. Even if we don't know what our mind is eternal, or that our mind is eternal, we should still be pious, religious, and strive towards the strength of mind and generosity. So this is to say that our primary virtue is our own profit, and this is maximized when others are, uh, are also profitable, when they also partake 
you cannot, as we've stressed in previous parts for Spinoza, this doesn't happen alone. You must make it part of your job in the path of reason or along the path of reason to help others. Because the more people that participate, the greater your own reason will be. And you don't just do it because it'll benefit you, but because of the, um, the in the act of bringing together other humans, other thinking things, thinking beings, and optimizing their capacity for reason, the more the pool of reason of all humanity and all the universe will grow, which is what we're really after. And the better knowledge we will have of God and be able to better understand and organize ourselves as a result to, I don't know, maybe the, maybe the end result is utopia. I have no idea, but for Spinoza, but yeah. And finally, 42, blessedness isn't virtue's reward, but is virtue itself. And it is by embracing blessedness, we can be free from our passions, from lust. Speak for yourself, Spinoza. Uh, if that's what your goal is, then you don't enjoy your life. Go for it. I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, so his point being that blessedness comes from love towards God through the third form of knowledge. Not by just embracing our bodily drives, our passions, but instead by embracing the intellect and our knowledge of God and God's attributes. And yeah, he concludes by saying that this path to virtuousness is difficult but it is necessary and you really you get on your way to it by taking his words here in this text very seriously and improving the understanding to direct yourself along the proper trajectory towards this end goal of virtue of blessedness of understanding god as much as you can and the order of things and yeah that's spinoza's ethics let me know what you think. Um, is there anything I got wrong? I excluded it. I'd love to hear about it uh, or, or anything else. I'm there's probably going to be some big changes. For those that have made it this far, you get a, I'll give you some updates about my life. There are probably some big changes occurring in the next little while. So I'll keep you updated, but it might affect my ability to make content. So we'll see. Hopefully not, but we'll see. And yeah, on that note, take care, everyone. I'll see you back here likely in a couple of weeks.